Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to a brand spanking new episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah, I'm your good pal, uh, Nate Larkin, here with our good pal, Aaron Porter. Seems like, well, I just talked to you yesterday, Aaron. It's, well, that's because we did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, nice to be back in your bedroom. Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> well, that sounds it weird. The, the video of your bed, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's fall when we're recording this. Uh, it, it wait, is it's fall? Is it, it's not it fall yet. Fall. It is it, fall, baby. After Labor Day, it's fall, isn't it? I, sure it is. Or is it not till September 21st? It's starting to feel like fall out. Yeah, it's getting there. My window is open for the first time okay. in six months. I love having the window open with my little northern cardinals that are coming to visit me. I guess to me it feels like fall when football season begins. So professional, the you know the NFL opener actually was last Thursday, and then uh, uh, my beloved Titans suffered just an absolute heartbreak yesterday. I mean, just in the ah. Oh, just the missed field goal and a oh, one-point loss. It, it was it just was, oh, awful. It was, it was heartbreaking. I know. What are you talking about? You, <laughs> yeah, I, you I, don't I didn't watch know. football, do you, Aaron? No, no, I didn't know the season started. But I was trying to, you know, be an empath Sport for ball. you. It, yeah, it hurts okay. when they lose by <laughs> such close <laughs> margins and things like that. <laughs> Well, if you aren't watching football, what are you doing? I'm I'm always mowing the lawn or cleaning the kitchen. That's that's all I do. <laughs> uh, but, but that gives me time to listen to my audiobooks. I oh, love yeah. doing boring tasks and listening to audiobooks. And me too. I have a couple books that I go back to every maybe four years that I've mm-hmm. read over ten times now. It's just they're part of me. And one of them I just finished yesterday. Incredibly long book. I think the audiobook's like 60 or 70 hours. And what? It, is, it is the book Musashi about the life of Miyamoto Musashi. And it, it got me thinking as I finished. Oh, wait a second. Is he the, is the inventor of sushi or what is Miyamoto Musashi is the greatest swordsman in the history of the world. I think he had more duels to the death than anybody. And, you know, you guys can debate this, but he was a guy that just... Uh, <laughs> I have no position. Yeah, he, okay. he, he wandered around Japan during the, the kind of the end of the samurai era. And uh-huh. uh, he, he wrote a book called The Book of Five Rings, which is amazing okay. to actually get to read his thoughts on sword fighting. But he was really okay. just trying to understand life. He wanted a balanced okay. life. Um, so I would say it was more half monk, half sword fighter, which is why throughout this book, you're getting tons of just this philosophy of how he's living. Okay. And it, and it also makes me think of Shogun, which many people remember from the TV Mm -hmm. miniseries in the eighties, but it's a fantastic book. And although the Japanese life back then was not something I would have wanted to be a part of both books Mm -hmm. resonate with this idea of honor and duty. And especially in Shogun, it struck me that a, a 
peasant, a person that's a cobbler. Well, they had sandals. I don't know if they call them cobblers. Anyways, doesn't doesn't matter what your duty is that you can receive honor from mm-hmm. doing your duty. Mm-hmm. And duty to me was always a bad word. Growing up in the evangelical yeah. church, it was always, hey, I need to get past doing this just because of duty, and I need to do mm-hmm. it because I want to. My heart needs to be attached. And every time I read these books, it reminds me that duty is not a bad word. The duty is a mm-hmm. gift that I can give myself, a gift of honor, by participating in whatever the duties that God has given me in relationships, in the home, wow. in work. And it makes every act significant, whether it's cleaning the kitchen or mowing the lawn, that I am somehow mm-hmm. acting in my duty and I receive honor for that from myself, that I know I'm doing it. Yeah, Tell me your yeah, thoughts about yeah. duty and honor. I want to throw it out there and get your thoughts. Wow. You know, it's not something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about consciously. Although, uh, well, for example, uh, my beloved wife, who I absolutely adore, is 10 years my senior. She's had some health issues. We're cruising into another one. We have an appointment with an oncologist tomorrow. Um, and part of our marriage covenant is, you know, to, to, to care for each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I become the primary caregiver. I can go, I can get sideways in my own head on that thing mm-hmm. uh, and start to feel as though I'm being put upon, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, it seems like there are more important things I ought to be doing than taking care of household tasks that Allie can't handle right now or, or you know, all the other things that, that go with caring somebody who's, who's seriously ill. Uh, and if I go down that path, self-pity sets in or perhaps some self-congratulation. And then if, uh, if it's not acknowledged properly, resentment, and resentment, there's a short path from resentment to relapse. Mm. Yeah. Right? Um, but there's another way to look at it. And I, at times, and especially with the help of my brothers, look at it the other way. Look at it as duty, as privilege. And when I'm there doing it because this is my task to do today, and I do it well, and I do it, uh, yeah, uh, thoroughly and carefully and attentively, you're right. There is, it's a whole different experience for me. Yeah. And I'm certain for Allie, because if I'm in another head, I know she picks up on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that brings feelings of guilt that she can't do it and right. obligation yeah, right. and reciprocity, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I, I, I agree. It makes, it brings joy to the day mm-hmm. and, and I can, I can feel God's smile at his kids uh, when we engage in those duties yeah. as, as beautiful things and as, as artistry. I mean, come on, you're creating things. Cleaning a kitchen mm-hmm. is like, yeah, I can do a crappy job, leave the crumbs on the counter, but to engage it like this is something special, yeah. I mean, we can choose to perceive things that way. And I, I mm. just, uh, I was encouraged as I finished wrapping up Musashi again. Uh, wow. Encouraged and reminded to set my mind right 
and be a man because it's a good thing to be a man, wow. to be a woman, and to step into those with all the gravitas that was intended. Wow. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I am going to uh, take from you the Reader's Digest version of that book. I don't know that I can commit to 60 no. hours of a sword fighter. Yeah. Uh, people get tend to get rather bored with it, but there's not a lot of sword fighting in it. It's a, it's a lot of wandering around Japan and, you know, learning how to seed a field and make a rice patty. It's, it's a, it's a tedious book to most people. I love it. I don't know why I read it in <laughs> high school first. So I think it's just like in me. Okay. All right. But I recommend it. Okay. Well, hey, uh, we've got a great guest this week and a wonderful conversation that I'm sure all of our listeners, uh, especially those of our listeners who are married, are going to find useful. And he's a so, porter to boot, so it's got to be good. Yeah, yeah. Is What is he, a third cousin, fourth cousin, fifth cousin? <laughs> I, uh, sure, yes, yes, an intimate uh, fourth cousin. <laughs> uh, listeners, you're going to love us. I love this. Uh, when we return... <laughs> <laughs> on the please, platform. please, please uh, love us. Please, please love, love us. us. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll be right back. Now, welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest with us this week. Dr. Jake Porter is with us. Uh, he's the founder and president of Daring Ventures Counseling, Coaching, and Consultation. Also, he is the creator of Couple-Centered Recovery, a model that places primary attachment relationship at the center of the recovery and healing process. In addition to all that, he's an assistant professor of counseling at Houston Graduate School of Theology and serves as director of the Doctor of Professional Counseling Program. Uh, wow. Dr. Jake, thank you so Come much on. for hey. joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm I am a fan of you guys, uh, so oh, it's it's uh, just an honor to be with you. Oh dear, oh dear, <laughs> oh, dear. oh dear. Everything that Nate said sounded so good, and then you had to throw that in. Now I'm questioning your sanity. Uh. <laughs> I blew it. I know. I know. It's all good. It's so all how, good. How did you get to this spot where you're doing all these things? What what took you down this vocational path? Oh, well, I absolutely was addicted to work and education. And uh -huh. uh, it was just one more way to try to outrun living life. And so, um, you know, when I got into recovery for uh, sex addiction, after that, I had to keep doing something to distract mm -hmm. me. So I've got three master's degrees and a doctorate and started companies and you know whatever else i could do to just not have to actually pause and be still and feel anything uh, so, so that's the real story well yeah. those those are all things that people probably encouraged you like good job you're doing so great oh, so yeah. how did you come to the point where you went oh this stuff that's being applauded actually is something i need to deal with well, a couple things. One was a relapse in my sex addiction because mm -hmm. I was spinning out of control in all these other areas of my life. Um, and then shortly after that, I, I actually got married and I graduated with my doctorate. And probably, you know, five, six months later, I was looking at MBA programs and my wife said, I hope 
your next wife throws you a big graduation party. <laughs> so the message was received that yeah. uh, there would be no more formal degree programs, at least right now. And uh, yeah, that's that. <laughs> wow. How, how would you suggest people? Cause I just think about church people, especially mm-hmm. the church is such a great place to do things that get nothing but praise, but end up right. being so unhealthy and unbalanced. So how do people even assess that if they don't have a genius wife like yours who throws <laughs> such a great line? <laughs> well, you know, I, I really think the key is about, am I opening myself up to really be known in community? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Or does, um, or does all the stuff, all the busyness, all of the activities serve as this really convenient barrier to just sitting with people and being known and sharing my heart and letting people in. Um, it's especially in the church world, you know, like it's really convenient because it's, you can list a whole bunch of good ministries and service, you know, acts that you're doing. And I mean, who can criticize you for that? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're too important to actually attend a community group or a small group or a men's group because you got all this other stuff you're doing for Jesus. And, uh, that's just a recipe for disaster. So in the end, it comes back to community. Someone's got to reflect go. to us the, the truth of our hearts that we don't want to face. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. I, I'll yeah. tell you what, Jake, uh, Aaron and I have been talking recently. Uh, well, I've been bending Aaron's ear recently about a book <laughs> that's just dominating my thinking. The Arthur C. Brooks recent book, From Strength to Strength. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he's got I'm not. a chapter on success addiction. Oh, And he's got this great phrase. He describes uh, our curated identity. Ooh. Oh, oh isn't, that a, isn't that a great phrase? So, so we spend all this time mm. constructing and defending and projecting a curated identity. And meanwhile, our real self gets lonelier and lonelier, more desperate and more desperate, more uh, vulnerable to you know, addiction and everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think... Uh, our society, it's just, it's just eaten up with it. Right. I mean, yeah. The, yeah. the Instagram posts, the social media presence, that front facing yeah. persona. Um, oh, it's just, it's, it's really a thief, you know, yeah. it is a real thief to, to the joy of being known and, and real. It's, isn't it amazing that there have been so many studies now since Facebook came out that show how unhealthy those social media platforms are (laughs) in curating this persona. Mm -hmm. And yet it still doesn't seem like it's talked about too much as being, I mean, it it is, it's not that it's never talked about, but it's sure doesn't seem to get the attention it deserves for the amount of study about the unhealthy things that come from that. I, I think you're right. And I think, I think there's, dynamics around money involved with that. I think that mm-hmm. so many people are caught up with it themselves. It's like, eh, you know, I, if I talk about this too much, I'm going to have to change my own behaviors. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, I could, it's I could post about it on Facebook. Let's do that. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, the classic, I'm going to be taking a, a, a Facebook break, you know, but I've got to yeah. announce it to the whole world via Facebook. 
what I'm doing. <laughs> because God forbid I just not show up on social media for a while. People might think I've gone missing or something. Yeah. 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 So wow. take us into this family-centered recovery. Couple-centered yeah. couple recovery. Couple-centered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, it, it really is connected to what we've already been talking about how essential community is right for us as mm-hmm. human beings. And, and my own kind of journey into this was when I first started doing um, this work on the clinical side. Uh, so let me back up a little bit. So I got into recovery myself probably 15 ish years ago. Um, and then I, I started uh, getting trained to do it professionally and eventually kind of transitioned from being a pastor. I was a pastor of a church for 13 years, transitioned into the clinical work. And at first, I only wanted to see individual male addicts. Like, that was it. Yeah, that was all I yeah, was yeah. to do. That was, I was comfortable with that. I identified with that. I knew what to do. I was good at it. And then I had a colleague, uh, Kathy Reynolds, um, who still works with me beg me, please see these partners of these addicts, please. They need someone, you know, to help them, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I, I, you know, uh, actually the person in me who could not say no said yes. And, uh, uh-huh. because I didn't want to disappoint her, but you know what, then it went, I went from seeing these partners to them asking me, will you see us as a couple? And I had sworn I would never do couples work, but I did. And I saw something happening in these couple sessions. And I saw, I was learning my concept of what's going on with addiction and recovery began to expand. And, and long story short, what I came to see is addiction. I'm not going to say all the time, but the vast majority of the time, it's where I'm using something on the outside to change the way I feel on the inside. Right. And the reason why I'm, unable to change the way I feel on the inside in healthy ways usually comes back to relational issues early on, not being mirrored, right? Not having those capacities built out in us. And, and so what recovery programs do is they actually help us reactivate and heal the attachment system so that we can, you know, not have to use something on the outside to change how we feel on the inside. Well, it dawned on me like, Okay, so I could do that with this group of guys that I see once a week and this guy I call a sponsor who I see once a week. And yeah, I do Mm -hmm. check in phone calls throughout the week. But what if I took the most important relationship in my life, the one that Mm -hmm. I'm faced with, you know, for hours and hours (laughs) and hours every day, Mm -hmm. and I use that and I leverage the power of the biologically wired in God given attachment system in that most important relationship, I leverage that for that internal healing that needs to happen for that deep recovery to take place. And that's Mm. really the premise of couple center recovery. The other side of that coin is that for the partner who has discovered betrayal and had the trauma of betrayal happen, that's also an attachment wound. And so Mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're just seeing the, the recovery of the addiction and the healing of the betrayal trauma as being able to take place in one act Okay, in one movement uh, Mm -hmm. that's for the benefit of them both through the attachment system. So would you say that often this kind of therapy ends up focusing on one person or the other, the wounded, the betrayal part or the addiction part? Yes. So how do you marry those and 
do that work together in a way that makes both people feel comfortable? Well, um, I never promise that both people will feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was probably no, the, one. the worst way to <laughs> No, it's it. okay. I think that's that's actually really important, right? Like, I, I am really upfront that if you go this route and you put the relationship at the center, you're going to feel more pains and aches and bumps and scratches and bruises and rawness along the way. Um, especially for the one that experienced the betrayal, because we're, we're essentially asking them to make themselves vulnerable again. Now in a measured and careful way, there's an order to that. Um, Mm -hmm. I often, where I start is I talk about the necessary, uh, power dynamics after the discovery of betrayal and how it's going to feel uneven for a while. But that's just about, uh, coming back to equilibrium and things balancing out and regaining trust. But but I put it in the middle by saying to them both, like, you're hiring me to advocate for this relationship, mm-hmm. right? And and so I've got one client in front of me, not two. I've got one client and it's the relationship. And everything we do is going to be aiming at this relationship being healed from that attachment wound and becoming a, a flourishing, secure, functioning relationship. And, and this tragedy and trauma of addiction and betrayal actually provides an incredible opportunity to build something new that, that wouldn't be there otherwise. I am so thrilled to hear you talking this way because you're changing the paradigm. Accepted wisdom when I came into recovery 20 years ago is that Uh, recovery for the two of them, if it was going to happen for both partners, was going to happen on separate tracks at different times. And we were, right, Uh, and we were strictly separated, and then we were not supposed to talk about stuff, and, uh, right? Yeah, and what, I mean, that's that's not a marriage I want, you know, like, that's not my vision for a marriage. Um, you know, here's how, how I often explain it. I I say there are three levels of relationship health. Okay. And level one is really like unhealth. Okay. It's really dysfunctional. (laughs) A level one relationship is where even if it's not stated, the, the paradigm that's lived is either I exist for you or you exist for me. And Mm -hmm. maybe we even like take turns swapping back and forth, but there's never a bi-directional mutuality there. It's, it's really like the old school codependency, right? Like I exist for you or you exist for me to take care of me. Right. Okay. And that's, that's where a lot of addicts live at first, right? Well, traditional recovery, I think, and I want to give credit, like is really good at moving people from level one to level two. And level two is where I go, you know what? I'm responsible for me. Yeah. And you know what? You you're responsible to take care of you. And you can even make it sound like a really, you know, nice Hallmark card, right? Like I take care of me for you and you take care of you for me. Um mm-hmm. and that can feel so much better than level 1. People are like, this is it. It can't get any better than this. But it can. Uh, Cuz level uh, 3 is I can take care of myself and my partner at the same time. Mhm. Wow. Right. Like it doesn't have to be an either or. And and even though I like I am responsible for myself in a way that I'm not responsible for my partner, there's Mm -hmm. simultaneously a way in which I am responsible 
I have mm-hmm. an influence there that I have to own and vice mm-hmm. versa. And if we mm-hmm. adopt that paradigm, okay, now we're getting into something that is way more secure functioning. Yeah. Wow. That's wow. That you just described something that comes to feel safe because at level two, there can still be a lack of safety. If sure. I'm proud of the other person, take care, taking care of their needs and doing that good for you. But but then that can turn into a weird kind of selfishness that then I don't feel safe that, in my right. own neediness. And man, especially, neediness is important. Yeah, especially if um, there was a deep attachment wound in the relationship around you not telling me things, right? Okay. You were withholding things from me, right? So if if it's a betrayed partner who didn't know that you know, her husband was seeing prostitutes or doing porn or whatever the behavior was really is secondary to the fact that you let me believe my reality was one thing when it was Mm -hmm. another, right? You were withholding from me. And so level two still feels like you're withholding from me. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not safe. Of course it's not safe. You know, I, how do I trust? So, so I tell people level three relationships, there are two principles. To, to, to be in a secure functioning relationship. Number one, we tell each other everything. And number two is we put the relationship first. And, and think about this. Think about a traditional 12-step program. And there, there's actually been research. Why do 12-step programs work? And, mm-hmm. and they work if you work it, right? That's the phrase that, yeah, that's, that's used. It. But, and the, the research shows that there are basically two things that make it effective. Number one is that you do prioritize your recovery program. Like it mm-hmm. comes first. Okay. And number two is that you have a sponsor or a small group of, of others who you are completely transparent with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So why, why do those two things with these guys over here and not with my wife? Mm-hmm. Right. Tell her everything and put the relationship first. Right. And the pushback on that would be, this is, if I'm sharing all my stuff with her, it's actually as an act of selfishness because it's causing her pain. So I go to these other people so she doesn't have to bear that. What do you say to that? Well, here's what I say to that. One, I want to acknowledge every couple's different. And I help couples talk about what is the level of of resolution at which stuff is going to be shared, right? Mm-hmm. What what's because when I say we tell each other everything, I don't literally mean everything. That would be impossible. Number one, I don't remember everything. Number two, you know, if I told my wife, oh yeah, Nate had a guitar in the background while we were recording, and you know, da, 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 we wouldn't get to the relevant stuff. So mm-hmm. we the, the the point is really that I'm not withholding data that if you knew it, you might choose to show up otherwise in this relationship. I want to empower my partner to show up freely, not disempower her by withholding data that might affect the choices she makes and how she shows up. So we've got to we've got to navigate for every couple how that works, where that line is drawn. And I think it's also okay to say, especially when you're learning how to live this different paradigm, I'm going to take it to my support group first, you know, mm-hmm. within 24 hours, I'm going to process it with them. So it's not raw. And then I'm going to come to you within 48 hours or something like that. Okay. Yeah. That, that answers this objection that was bubbling up in me. 
because I mm-hmm. do know, at least I've been saying, been thinking, been believing, been preaching for years that uh, it is unhealthy for me to put my wife in the position of being my accountability partner in all matters sexual. And she's going to carry that alone. Right. 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 I agree. I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. She shouldn't, she shouldn't have to be the policeman, you know, she shouldn't be the parole officer. Right. But she's your partner. Yeah. And so, and so she does need the data, but it's, it's, what role does she take when you share the data? That's why, yeah, have that sponsor, have those guys that you're accountable to, have those people mm-hmm. that do the raw right. processing with you. And then you come to your wife and you say, hey, I need to share this with you. This is something yeah. that happened and you have the right to know. Yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah. And uh, so this isn't something that people should rush into without developing the tools and the vocabulary. Absolutely. Right. But you're describing this third way again. Where mm-hmm. it's not going to a spouse to confess, it's going to a spouse to be known. Their job is not the jailkeeper and That's right. the judge, but That's right. to be like, I love you so much. Okay, I'm glad I know you're going through this. How can I support you? It's, it's a very different conversation than what most people do when they talk to their spouse about what's sure. going on. Yeah, it is. And, and we have to also remember that Maybe I bring that news to my wife and her initial reaction is hurt or anger mm-hmm. or sure, whatever. Right. That's okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that she's allowed to have her her reaction to that. And I need to be able to tolerate that and be and be in that space with her. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's there's something for both of us in that. Right. Yeah. And so no, it's not to confess, but it is to, it is to be truly intimate, mm-hmm. to be truly known. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's confession in the deepest sense of the word, because intimacy can't happen without confession. Confession simply meaning we're saying the same thing, but we can't say right. the same thing if we don't know the same thing. Yes. And when we know and yeah. say the same thing, then my heart connects to that person. Then repentance comes after that, not where I'm turning the other way, but I'm thinking differently. Yes. Yeah. And it's just a natural progression. It's all about intimacy. Will you please go a little deeper? Because I know this is stuff that a lot of our listeners have or are dealing with. You talked about a, a power imbalance. People get yeah. stuck in power imbalances, and it never comes back to that equilir- uh, equilibrium you were talking about. That's right. Will you describe the power imbalance that happens at the beginning of the journey and how to move towards equilibrium? Absolutely. So um, so I actually do this silly little illustration uh, with a, using a coaster and two Hershey's Kisses in my office. So listeners could actually like go to, go to YouTube, Google Jake Porter, Are You on the Coaster?, and, and see the whole silly dem- demonstration. But he- here's, here's how I explain it. During the time of the act of addiction that's being hidden, the power imbalance is that the one who is withholding data, so the one doing the, the secret betrayal, um, has, has power over the one who does not know everything going on, right? Mm-hmm. The one who, who doesn't know the full reality is living by a set of rules that the one who's withholding reality is not. 
And those rules include the two principles I talked about earlier. We tell each other everything. We put the relationship first. So usually these betrayed partners, they know things aren't perfect. They know that they're struggling, but they often they're like, but at least, you know, we're both trying. We're we're both Mm -hmm. giving it our all, right? We're both giving it our best shot or whatever. So then when they find out what's really going on, they find out that that the one who's been lost in addiction, hiding things, they haven't been telling everything. They haven't been putting the relationship first. What, what does that partner this then decide? Well, those rules aren't safe. It's not safe for one person to live by those rules when the other person isn't. And so, so the one who was betrayed is going to say, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting this relationship first. I did that and look at what it got me. So now the one who's just been busted is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I Hold on, you know, uh, I, I want to make it right. Um, I, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. Well, here's what you can do. You can start living by those two rules. We tell each other everything. We put the relationship first while your partner is standing back and watching and waiting. Mm-hmm. And so it feels very uneven because you're now living by these principles that that the betrayed partner is not because it's not safe in her mind to do it. So the way you regain trust is by tolerating this power imbalance saying, I am here. I am in this right consistently over time until then the betrayed partner begins to think, okay, I'll, I'll put my toe back in the water here. I'll wait Mm -hmm. into my ankles. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll get into my knees. Right. So for people that have been on the betrayed side, how do they assess when it's gone too long? It's expired and now it's toxic to them. The 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 disempowerment you're talking about? Yeah. Or the, so I'm, the I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking yeah. of a couple that yeah. had a betrayal and it was eight years later mm-hmm. and it was still like it was day one in that imbalance. Right. And it, it had just become a new way of living. So so if that couple were sitting in front of me, I would want to do a little bit of assessment with them. And I would I would first look at, number one, have they gone through a grief? Well, no, number one is, is there safety and stability, right? Has there been a good recovery established? Is, is there a foundation of sobriety established? Uh, has transparency and accountability been established? So, so those things that initially help to recreate some safety and stability and a lot of betrayed partners, correct me there, not recreates for some of them, it's created for the first time, some safety and stability. If that stuff has happened, there's good recovery and good sobriety and transparency and accountability and, and those sorts of things mm-hmm. have happened. My next question is, have they done grief work together? Okay. Grief is a healing process. It's painful, but grief is where the healing happens. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly transformative. And I think what happens a lot is that couples will grieve, but they grieve on their own and not together. And -hmm. when that happens, they, they go through this transformation separately and there's no intimacy being established or rebuilt. They're changing apart from and different from each other. And so they have to be able to grieve together, which means that they look back at what happened and they have a shared story. Mm -hmm. 
if you don't have a shared understanding of the past, you cannot have a shared trajectory for the future. If, oh, if oh I don't say know, that again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if you don't have a shared understanding of the past, you cannot have a shared trajectory for the future. Right? So if if often what happens is the addict is like, I'm a different person. I'm looking forward. I don't want to go back there. And his wife is still standing over this grave, heartbroken and alone. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, and so how is she going to trust this guy? If she doesn't even know, does he see the loss? I see, does he understand the pain? Mm-hmm. I feel? does he, does he get the, the story that is now my story? Because so, so one of the things that I have guys do is I have them like talk, look in your wife's eyes, hold her gaze, hold her gaze. And I'll say these words. I'm not going to leave you in the pain that I caused you. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be with you in your pain than not with you at all. Mm-hmm. Can we go back? Can we stand over the grave together and talk about what was lost? Because only then can that deeper trust and safety be built where it's like, okay, we've got a shared story again. As a couple, your shared story is part of your identity. And that gets shattered with the discovery of the betrayal, right? So you got to construct a new one. Are you going to do that together or apart? And you're, you're circling back again to that idea of true confession as in the confession of the faith this is the thing we hold yeah. together that immediately and deeply starts creating bonds of intimacy yes i i had an experience with uh how do i make this super vague uh, hmm. i got screwed over by somebody <laughs> in my life really oh. bad a number of years ago and they felt bad about it so they gaslit the hell out of me yeah and then ended it with well let's just agree to disagree and I said, I don't know how to be in relationship with you when we have two totally different versions of history. I, I don't exactly. I, I can't sit here and pretend we're in a relationship. And that's what when you're saying this, I'm like, man, how utterly destructive that was. And it's it's never been healed. It could be healed if we came to that. But that's the right. shared story was everything relationally. And I think that is such a simple and beautiful thing that we can all grow in. I mean, that's not, that's not rocket surgery. It, it's not. And, <laughs> and, you know, there's a humility factor in this as well. It's like, you know, if, if an event happened and I'm talking to my wife about it and she had one experience of the event and I had a completely different experience to the point that the person who didn't know would think we're talking about two completely different events. What am I going to do there? What's my attitude? I can either say, well, one of us is right and one of us is wrong, which is a very two-dimensional understanding of reality. Or I can mm-hmm. say, you know what? We're in different bodies with different histories. We perceive things differently. We experiencing, experience things differently. And I want to hold her experience of the event up equal to my own and maybe even higher because between the two of us, one of us has a better history with reality than the other. Okay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I'm gonna I'm gonna hold those together to try to create a three-dimensional, more three-dimensional understanding of what really happened. That's, that's a much better way to live. It's harder, but way more enriched. I'm just picturing a, a woman or a man who went through betrayal 
learning to tell that story in a way that says my spouse was feeling so alone, even in the midst of our family Mm -hmm. and like explaining that story, not dismissing any of the pain it caused. I can see how healing it is for them because they don't have to defend their hurt. Often the way I tell stories is in a way to defend my hurts. Yes. So it's healing for them to let that go, but oh, to be the person that perpetrated the betrayal, to hear the story told from the perspective of the internal internal turmoil that was going on. Incredibly healing. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've seen couples get there. I mean, like they really can, but there is an order to it, right? And I do think that the onus is on the one who did the betraying to lead the way mm-hmm. in setting a tone of, hey, we are speaking to be known. We are listening to understand, right? I'm not speaking to convince. I'm not speaking to condemn. I'm not speaking to persuade. I'm not speaking to, you know, I'm not listening to, you know, make my next point. I'm not listening for the error. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to be known. I'm listening to understand. And if the if the one who did the betraying will lead the way in that mm-hmm. and and do the work of understanding his partner's um, experience first, mm-hmm. that and there's there's neurobiological reasons for this, that, that experience of being validated and attuned to mm-hmm. lowers the defenses. It creates a sense of safety. And now that betrayed partner is actually more open to hearing the experience mm-hmm. of, of the one who did the betraying. Mm-hmm. You Man. are describing so beautifully this uh, healing process that Allie and I, thank God, you know, have been mm. guided through. You know, wow. not perfectly, but uh, it, it, you're describing the sequence so beautifully. I do have a question. You mentioned sure. uh, at the front end of the conversation that you're not a stranger to relapse. You have experienced relapse. I have experienced yes. relapse. Yes. To a partner who agrees to step into this process of healing uh, with uh, unrealistic or perfectionistic expectations, that you know what happened will never happen to any degree again. A relapse can be devastating, even fatal. Right? How do you how do you uh, how do you set the tone at the front end to uh, to be realistic in the process? You know, I and there are going to be people who disagree with what I'm going to say, and so I'll just lead with that. So I don't find it very useful to sort of corner a partner Mm -hmm. to let go of unrealistic expectations. And here's the reason why, because they, nobody actually knows what they're going to do until they're in that situation. Right. Because often, often these partners said before they even discovered the betrayal, they said, if he ever cheats on me, I'm done. Well, Mm -hmm. okay. Now they know that he cheated and they're not done. If they're still saying, if this happens again, I'm done. Well, um, you know, that's not what your actions say so far. And, and maybe, maybe the next time that they will be done, but, but also maybe they won't and they won't really know until they're in that moment. So I don't know that that's all that important to, to confront, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's what we find Almost exclusively is that at the end of the day, honesty, transparency, being forthcoming 
is far more important than this or that acting out behavior. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how a relapse is handled is yes. going to make a much bigger difference for how that partner responds than mm-hmm. anything else. And what we have to remember as well is that the human brain is wired so that even a perceived threat to a primary attachment relationship registers as a survival issue. Okay. So whether it's the first discovery of betrayal or a relapse comes out, they're, a partner is going to go into survival mode. They're going to go into black and white thinking, fight or flight, all or nothing thinking. And it's to be expected that they might for a time say, that's it, it's done. Absolutely not. I can't do it. That's, that's normal. Uh-huh. That's okay. normal. We have to help them feel safe and secure, and then they can start making decisions about what they're going to do moving forward. That's yeah. super helpful. Yeah. That that is important. And it's important to understand that when we go to that little amygdala, we can't expect information to fix anything. And the better the information, the more it'll push us into fight or flight or freeze. And so just like before, the person who did the relapse is going to have to be patient and wait and be in the process. That's right. Absolutely. Man, we we need to make this a three hour episode, I think. (laughs) (laughs) oh Uh, this is such good stuff and this i know is going to be one of those episodes that gets played and replayed and passed around and shared because uh this cuts straight to the heart of the daily experience of so many of the men and women who listen to this podcast oh that's Uh, great yeah. So, uh, so how do people find out more about you, listen to your stuff, learn some more about this? Yeah. So um, I, I've got a website, drjakeporter.com. I've got a YouTube channel. There's tons of stuff on Instagram at drjakeporter. Um, uh, I do a lot of intensives with couples. Um, you can go to daringventures.com for that. Um, I'm pretty easy to find if you Google me. Um, I, I, I pop up and I'm pretty accessible too. Um, you know, you can email me jake at daringventures.com. I, I may not answer right away, but I will answer eventually. So, um, yeah, I, I think this is just a joy and an honor to help people, um, move through this process. It's, it, you know, for me, it's, it's about sharing what I've gone through, you know, what the Lord has done in Mm -hmm. my own life and, and getting to point other people to that same healing and comfort is, is just important to me. Yeah. A a joy and an honor. Well, listeners, check it out. Look into this, watch some YouTube things, get on that social media and enjoy something useful for once for Pete's sake and Jake's. And we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. That was fun. I feel hopeful yeah. that conversation. And I don't even, didn't have a reason not to feel hopeful, but that just made me feel like life is good. Uh, relationships can yeah. be great. Ah, he's got, he's got such a, he's got a great demeanor, first of all. And he's, uh, Jake is, he's kind of got this, he brings, I think he brings hope into the room. That's what I mm-hmm. sensed. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, really exciting for me to listen to how, you know, another new voice in the field. I, I mean, he's been here around, but he's oh, been around for a while, but he's new to me. But, you know, as more and more people come into the field and to see uh, more lights are coming on, we're not stuck only in the old paradigms and there's hope in new directions. This idea of couple centered recovery to me is revolutionary. Absolutely. Make marriage great again. (laughs) I'll wear the hat. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, man, it's uh, 1145 in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. We're we're recording at strange times these days. It just confuses my whole day. (laughs) Well, uh, we're going to have another conversation tomorrow, God willing. Uh, Justin is filling up the calendar for us. Uh, anything? Well, what? I guess before we go, we do want to remind the listeners uh, that uh, they can reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, any inquiries about Samson Manor or suggestions, uh, you can reach Samson Manor at samsonmanor at gmail.com. That's that recovery place in and- Mount Pleasant. And remember, we have given out an invitation in the last podcast that anyone coming to the Eva, Tennessee, first weekend in November uh, retreat can stay Mm -hmm. for a day or two at Samson Manor and uh, do some work projects and hang out, hang out with the boys some more. So let us know, uh, shoot us a note if you want to do that so we can prepare for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that wraps it for this episode, Aaron. You agree? I agree. Okay. Well, then, until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. (laughs) And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Meow. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.